Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Shares for Beginners. Thanks for joining me. I'm Phil Muscatello. I'd like to take a moment to explain what I'm trying to achieve with this podcast before we set out on the journey. It's about understanding the many ways of being involved in investment markets. I'll be talking to brokers, financial planners, and people who work in the financial services industry to see how the wheels turn from the inside. It's not going to turn you into a day trader or a hotshot investor. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. My primary aim is to help you to not make mistakes and, most of all, to not lose money. Even if you're not going to be putting your money directly into the share market, we'll be covering topics that you should be discussing with your financial advisor, planner or wealth manager. If you've got topics and questions that you'd like me to cover, please go to sharesforbeginners.com and leave a message. Now to my first guest. Rob Gilmore is a wealth manager helping private clients to understand their money choices. He's a self-confessed financial nerd and he offers a range of skills that we began by discussing. You've got Bachelors of Commerce and Law, a Master of Applied Finance and graduate diplomas in legal practice and financial planning. Did you have any time for fun? <laughs> There's been plenty of time for fun over the years, Phil, I can assure you. Uh, yeah, I mean, I studied economics because I really you know, enjoyed that field of, of study and law seemed to be a practical choice for, for business. I, I didn't start university knowing exactly what I wanted to do but just knew that those particular fields would be uh, useful from a, from a business perspective and professional perspective. Um, and then things have just kind of added to the list as I've you know, gone through various iterations of my, my career. So your dad introduced you to investing, didn't he? Yes, he did. Back in the days when you, know, you owned shares and your evidence of owning a share was a piece of paper. There was no such thing as an online broker. Uh, it was just a collection of pieces of paper in the drawer that you know, if you wanted to sell something, you, you posted it to the broker and, you know, they executed the trade and, and a new piece of paper would, would, would come back to you. So he's an investor himself and a businessman. And so I think he liked to impart knowledge. And I suppose you, you look back on, on that these days and you think, oh, well, that was really, really special to be able to share those things with, with, with dad. But he's always done it himself. So what was the first uh, shares that you bought? Oh, look, I can remember Western Mining which was eventually taken over by BHP. I can remember BTR Nilex, two, two holdings, and a number of other holdings that just simply don't exist anymore. So did he buy them on your behalf? Yeah, that's right. And then explain the whole process? Yeah. How, uh, did, he, how did he explain that to you? Oh, look, it was just I understood it as ownership of part of a company. And, and I thought, well, you know, that's, that's great. You can own part of a company and it's represented by this piece of paper. And I never had experience dealing with with brokers or or trading shares or or putting a portfolio. It was really a case of just imparting that knowledge as well. This is what you you can do and the mechanics of it. Yeah, and the mechanics yeah. of it, obviously today, are very different. 
But really, the, the mechanics of share investing, even though it's all computerised and done on electronic exchanges, the whole philosophy and the, uh, the mechanics behind share trading hasn't changed really, has it? You know, it, it actually hasn't. And it's, and it's interesting, uh, I'd say it probably hasn't changed in 100 years. There's a lot of things to, to trading. Uh, there's a big psychological aspect to it. And there's also a market aspect to it. So from a psychological perspective, you're battling yourself and trying to overcome certain cognitive biases. Uh, from a market perspective, well, the market's always changing. And it's interesting, I read a book some time ago. It was actually written in the 1930s, thereabouts. And um, a lot of the things that come out of that book are, are still very applicable today. And it's a story of someone who used to you know, trade shares in, in New York, you know. In who, early which, which, which book's that? Um, it's called Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. Oh, is that uh, Jesse Livermore? Uh, that, that does ring a bell. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a Jesse Livermore book. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, uh, I've seen there's a lot of sayings online where you, if you go and Google Jesse Livermore, you can find out a lot of his um, uh, aphorisms about share trading. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting. It's a story of, of someone who tried and failed many times failed for a lot of the reasons that people fail today, um, but also appreciated that the market that they were in, you know, and how they were doing things, the odds were actually stacked up against against him. And fast forward today, psychologically, the same issues still apply for anyone going down that path. And the market, well, it's, it's highly computerized and it's all driven by algorithms now. So, you know, in a lot of senses, the, the market challenges are, are, are still very much there. Okay, let's just step back a bit. Um, you're talking about the psychology. What are the, what's the cognitive biases and the psychology that you would recommend people understand if they are going to start buying shares? It's very easy to get caught up in hype and momentum to follow the headlines in the newspaper. And I think the same rules apply to whether you're trading or investing. You've, you really need to step back from the noise that's going on around you and try and approach things with a with a, with a clear head. And you know, when you when you see the 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 latest fad or the stock that's that's going up, the temptation, you know, you watch and watch and watch. You continue to see it go, and the same would apply with the market. The temptation is, oh well, it just keeps going up. I'm I'm going to get in. Well, normally, you know, that type at that time where where things are the most euphoric. Is, is, is the worst time to, to go in because ultimately that rolls over and it goes the other way and people watch it go down and then it becomes the most pessimistic and you think, oh gosh, I've just got to get out and it's the worst time to get out. And, you know, we saw a lot of people get caught up with that during the GFC, whereas, you know, if you'd, if you'd hung on through the bad times, then you come out the other side and, and you're, you're in positive territory. But a lot of people sold at the worst time and crystallized their losses and you know, permanently damaged their retirement savings. So it takes a long time to recover from, from things like that. And, and it's, um, it's emo- an emotional response. Um, and when there's money involved, it's, it's always hard to separate the, the emotion from It is. From the, the money really makes a difference to how you feel, you know, isn't it? There's anger and there's... What was I reading this morning? Someone was saying that they lose money and then they think that the market owes them the money back. That's right. <laughs> Which is not the market. Market, market doesn't uh, work like that at That's all. That's so impersonal, <laughs> isn't it? Investing in shares can be fun, but the paperwork isn't. ShareSite solves this problem. It's an online portfolio tracking tool that automatically records trades, dividends, ETF distributions, and gives you the reporting tools you need to help you manage your portfolio. 
ShareSite are pleased to extend a special offer to listeners of this podcast. Two months free on an annual premium plan. Go to ShareSite.com forward slash shares for beginners and sign up now for a free trial before taking advantage of two free months. It'll help you save money at tax time and improve your investing decisions. It's helped me. That's ShareSite.com forward slash shares for beginners. I just wanted to go back a little bit in your um, work history because you worked in London mm-hmm. for a while. Yeah. I uh, When I got to London, things weren't great economically. My first job over there was actually working in a pub because I arrived and started looking for work the day before 9-11. And um, the city of London's very responsive to you know, what goes on in the rest of the world and, and the financial markets. And things were pretty tough at that stage. And But I ended up taking up work in an institutional fund manager there, mainly in their finance uh, area. But it was great, sort of, you know, in the, in the coalface, um, working in the city of London. And in my later time in, in London, it was, you know, through the GFC. So we certainly saw a lot of things going on, meetings taking place, following the you know collapse of Lehman Brothers. You know, what does this mean for the organisation from a risk management perspective? And really fascinating times where people you know, hadn't seen what was unfolding in front of their eyes. And, and um, yeah, I mean, it's always um, great to live through those and, um, you know, having experienced it. What's an institutional fund manager? Yeah, uh, basically, it's a, um, a fund manager that manages money on behalf of other institutions. So, you know, take your, your super fund uh, here in Australia, it could be Australian Super. They employ other organisations to manage certain parts of the, of the money. And the business that I worked for was probably one of the largest. It managed a lot of pension money for Norwich Union Insurance, as it was known at the time. That's so, in the UK? In the it? UK, yeah. yeah. So it was, I used to tell people it was the, the biggest fund manager you've never heard of because it actually owned about 3% of the FTSE index, um, which, is, which is quite large. What's the FTSE index? Uh, that's the basic <laughs> uh, UK uh, index, of the top, um, top stocks in, in the UK. So it's a bit like the ASX 200 here, but obviously a lot bigger. What's an index? So, look, taking a, probably the, the thing that most people will understand is, is the ASX 200, and uh, that's an index of the top 200 companies on the Australian stock market. And so the index is basically a ranking of those companies from the highest value company through the first company through to the 200th. And so that index is then aggregated and a number is created. So you might see the ASX 200 is at 5,500 points. Um, Really, that's just an aggregate of the performance of those 200 companies. And that's what most people see on the news night to night. The ASX was up 1% or down 1%. Um, it's really the performance of those 200 companies. And index exist all around the world in terms of investing. They have an index or many indexes in the US market. The S&P 500 is, is a well-known one, uh, the top 500 companies in the US. The NASDAQ is another one, which is the tech companies in the US. And you also have indexes, say, in the UK, which is the FTSE 100. So really, it's just a way of aggregating uh, the biggest uh, companies uh, in the market and giving you information around the performance and there can be indexes in other asset classes as well like bonds and all that but it's really just a way of creating some sort of benchmark around um, explaining the performance of a market. I reckon the uh, sexiest sounding um, index is the Russell. (laughs) (laughs) Russell 2000. Yeah, Russell 2000. (laughs) (laughs) It's 2000 companies in the US. Um, And you can imagine um, the huge breadth of something like uh, the Russell 2000 index and 
Um, uh, and they're, you know, they're like small, small companies, aren't they? Smaller companies in the US, um, uh, but it's a much bigger market in the US. And the entire ASX 200 is oh, it's probably about 2,000 companies. Yeah. So, so the entire Australian market is about 2,000. 2,000 companies, yeah. yeah. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Yeah. I'm a prospective client and I've come to you and I said, okay, I want to manage my wealth, but I just want to uh, invest directly in the share market. Yeah. Well, there's, there's obviously shares, um, which is important, but there's also property. There's also uh, types of investments that are a little bit more defensive, like, like bonds. Um, and you also have other alternatives. Um, Hang on, we'll just stop there. The- okay. Defensive and bonds. What's defensive mean? So defensive an asset which is more geared towards capital stability and not losing money yeah yeah so one would say that you know bonds tend to be more stable and produce income cash is defensive because well there's there's no risk to holding cash in the bank provided the bank doesn't go under i guess you could always keep it under your mattress so cash and bonds tend to be the you know the defensive type of of assets that go into a portfolio Okay, so um, they're defensive assets, and they should be part of any portfolio that you're recommending. But um, there needs to be other aspects to that management of the finances. Look, absolutely, and people's circumstances are different. You know, often, you know, if someone's young and twenty years to retirement, then absolutely having a bias towards growth assets like shares and property makes sense because they're the type of investments that will give you the best return over that long period of time. The defensive assets like cash, well, we know that cash will ultimately lose value over time because of inflation, but it's the safest. But so it really depends on your time horizon and it depends on your appetite for risk. Now, if you invest in the share market, you know, if you take a 20-year period, you should be expecting something in the order of, you know, 8 to 10% per annum. Now, there will be years where it's higher than that and years that are lower than that, but that's the long-term you'll get the best returns in shares and property and you'll get the worst returns in cash. But there will be periods of time uh, where the share market could easily go down 40%, you know, like it did in the GFC. You've just got to weather that um, and know that, you know, play the, play the long game. So do you do any investing directly in shares for your clients? Look, I do. And I guess there's a number of different ways to invest in shares. You can access shares through a managed fund um, and that's where you're effectively outsourcing stock picking and employing the expertise of a, of a manager and that can be really useful to say access shares overseas so people talk to me about investing in asia well i really wouldn't know where to start in the chinese stock market but i know managers that are pretty good at it so there's managed funds, and, and using those is a great way to get access to a specific type of strategy or, or, or segment of the, 
the global share market. Can you explain to me in a managed fund, just in a bit more detail about how it works? Well, managed fund, you you give your money to a fund manager. Uh, The fund manager uh, ultimately uh, invests that money in a portfolio of shares, and there is a fee that that fund manager charges as a result of that. So hopefully you choose a manager that is going to perform well for you over the long term, and that's known as active management. So they're actively managing a portfolio to ultimately deliver excess returns or beat their benchmark, but not all of them do. And how do you, how do you buy a managed fund? Uh, you can go to a fund manager directly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can buy managed funds these days on the ASX through, um, through what's called uh, M funds, uh, which is a very easy way to, to access managed funds. A lot of managed funds these days are also traded on the ASX in the form of um, exchange-traded managed funds. So e- ETFs? Yeah, they're so like an ETFs. An ETF is similar to a, a managed fund? Uh, well, typically an ETF and how they're commonly known as is, is really like an index-type strategy, a very passive form of investing. And really, ETFs grew from the perspective that, well, a lot of fund managers actually don't beat the benchmark. And when I say benchmark, I'm talking about, say, the ASX 200, for example. And mathematically, you can't have all fund managers beating the benchmark, particularly when they're charging a fee. So they've not only got to beat the benchmark, they've got to beat the benchmark plus their fee. And mathematically, it's impossible for all of them to to beat that benchmark. And, And that's really where a chap by the name of Jack Bogle pioneered index investing, saying, well, you know, there's all these fund managers out there charging a fee. Uh, Most of them don't beat the benchmark. Well, why don't we just invest in the benchmark? And that's really where index investing came from and and how a lot of exchange-traded funds were created to just buy the index. And that's known as passive investing. So there's no one actually um, choosing the stocks. They're just buying the stocks in the benchmark and uh, a mathematical algorithm is adjusting that every day. And interestingly, most uh, activity in, a, in share markets these days is all done by algorithms and it's algorithms off the back of exchange traded funds, just mathematically investing money, algorithms that are being put together by fund managers to try and come up with a mathematical way of, of, of beating the market. And the ASX 200 is not set in stone. It's changing all the time. Some companies are coming in, some companies are going out, and the, I don't want to use the word weighting, but the proportion that each company occupies of that ASX 200 changes. So is that what an ETF is doing, is managing that? Well, that's exactly right. It's, it's structured based on the size of each company. So you know, if your biggest company in the index is, is CBA, Commonwealth Bank, then your exchange-traded fund is that is going to be the biggest holding in it. And it's interesting, you know, the bigger that these companies get, bigger the proportion of the index that they occupy, and the exchange-traded funds have to buy more of it. We've seen this extreme example in the United States where it's the tech companies these days, um, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Microsoft, known as the FANG stocks, have become so big and take a big proportion of the index, it, it, it creates a concentration. Um, so the bigger they get, more capital goes in, which is kind of fundamentally flawed. You shouldn't be putting more capital into something just because it's bigger. So there are other ways of structuring an index, and there are other exchange-traded funds that, that look for a little bit more of a creative way of, of, of allocating that. But broadly speaking, 
an index will be structured based on the biggest company to the smallest company in, the, in that, and then it's rebalanced over certain periods of time to reflect the changes in the, uh, in the size of the underlying companies. So anyway, I'm the client that's come to see you. And I say, no, no, I don't. I'm not interested in all that. It all sounds too complicated. I want to buy BHP and CBA. What do you say to me? Well, I'd say um, that's fine. You can you can do that. And there's many different ways you can do that through um, discount brokers where you can own the shares directly and you don't need to pay a lot of money in terms of brokerage and you can access that directly. Um, I'd say, you know, do you really want to pin all of your savings on the performance of two companies? You know, BHP is a mining company. But they're great companes and they're, yeah. they're, they're huge. They're, part, you know, huge parts of the ASX 200. What's yeah. wrong with investing on those? Nothing's wrong with investing on those and, you know, hold those companies through the, through the long term, particularly the, the Commonwealth Bank, you'll do fine. But you are going to, in investing in just two stocks, you are going to see lots of swings in fortunes uh, around the performance of those two stocks and you're going to open up your portfolio to really just the, the the risks around two companies so my first challenge on that would be um, you need to broaden your horizons and look at investing in other companies so you spread your risk and and that term's known as diversification and there's a number of ways you can you can do that you can say okay well rather than buying just bhp and cba i'm going to select at least 10 other stocks to be able to invest in um, so it's not just beholden to the performance of two companies. I've spread my risk around 10 companies. That will depend on the size of your portfolio. You know, if you don't have a lot of money to, um, to put towards it, I, I would say start out with something that naturally gives you a broad exposure, like an exchange-traded fund to give you that 200-company exposure or something like a listed investment company that might do the same thing in a very low cost way and 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 give you a broad exposure or maybe a managed fund um, so can i just stop there because i still can't work out what the difference is between a listed investment company known as lic's and an etf which is an exchange traded fund what are the difference between the two look i really like listed investment companies and a listed investment company it's like any company listed on the asx uh, except it's not an operating business like commonwealth bank it's a company that invests and there are many many different listed investment companies on the asx some of those listed investment companies just invest in a portfolio of stocks that might typically be around the asx top 100 or 200 and they are a different way of accessing a broad exposure to to shares uh, the difference between a listed investment company and an exchange traded fund is a listed investment company has its portfolio uh, it's managed by someone and they can be managed in a very low cost way and sometimes cheaper than an exchange traded fund um, but it's a set portfolio of stocks it's not trying to mirror an index there's someone ultimately behind it stock picking but there's a l- number of them out there like i say that have been around for many decades that just buy and hold shares over the long term and have proven to be a very effective way of getting a broad exposure to the market and getting a nice dividend off the back of that. And a strategy that invests in a listed investment company or even an exchange-traded fund and reinvests those dividends over the long term is a great way to get broad exposure to the market without having to worry about the stock picking and just let things grow and compound over time, 
can be a great core to starting out and then around the edges of it, potentially, you know, picking some additional stocks that you might like to add to the mix. Just coming back to BHP and CBA, they've got different risks, haven't they? What are the risks with a BHP? You've got to look at what a company does. BHP, it's a mining company. So it digs things out of the ground and sells them overseas to other companies and countries that want to buy it. Uh, BHP mines iron ore. Um, It has a lot of assets in oil and gas, copper. So BHP's performance is really dictated by the price of commodities. And And those things like copper and iron ore are commodities, are they? Yeah, Yeah. they're all commodities. And commodities trade on, on, on markets like shares and commodities, the price of them is dictated by demand and supply. So when the world's doing okay, there's more demand for commodities. So the price goes up. But similarly, the world goes through periods where it's not so okay and the price of commodities go down. And commodity prices are very cyclical. So it's up and down. And historically, mining companies like BHP have not made the best decisions at particular points in the commodity cycle and shareholder value has often evaporated. Um, So you've got to understand... You know, well, what kind of business are you investing in? And for BHP, you're you're investing in in commodities, and so you're going to see uh, a lot more up and downs with that type of investment. Commonwealth Bank, well, it's a bank. Now, banking, we know Commonwealth Bank. It's it's the biggest bank in Australia. Um, it has very strong market powers, along with the other big four banks. It's like an oligopoly, and we know that. You know, if the cost of money for banks goes up through interest rates, well, we know what they do. They pass it on to their customers, don't they? So banks have very strong um, pricing power. But banks uh, also, you know, go through periods uh, where it can be, can be more challenging. But typically investing in a, uh, in a bank like Commonwealth Bank, you, you're going to see probably more stability in terms of your cash flow and predictability of the business. But typically, banks are very good at controlling their costs and they've got a lot of power in the market. So you're going to tend to see a little bit more um, stability of income um, from from a bank um, than you would say a a mining business like um, BHP. Why should people come to you to manage their money? Well, often people... Getting to the big questions here. Yeah. (laughs) Well, often um, there's a number of... um, and, and you're, a, you're a financial planner, wealth manager. Is that the best way to describe what you do? Yeah, I mean, my background's accounting and, and really sort of what, largely what I do, it's, it's around tax and investments. You know, we firstly look at the, the best way to manage money. Um, we look at the, the structures and often the decisions around tax and saving tax can be just as important as the, the decisions around in, investing the money. So we look at the big picture first and, you know, understand what, well, what people want to achieve and, and often... You know, people will come to see me because they're at a stage where they're worried about their retirement or they're at a stage where they've got so much on that they're not paying attention to, you know, their own investments and, and, and that longer term plan. Or there might be a life changing event with an inheritance or, you know, um, where, you know, getting some assistance around money is important because they want to make the long term decisions. So, so putting those pieces together from, from the big picture um, is important in understanding objectives rather than sort of jumping to the conclusion this is what we invest in. But once we get that understood, long-term objectives, the type of uh, structures that are appropriate, then we can look at sort of 
you know, well, how do we invest the money and how do we do that over a long, long period of time? So, and often those investment decisions are areas where, you know, most people don't understand. Most people have their own excellence in terms of what they do day to day. They don't have the time to become experts in the share market or, you know, property market, and they want help with those decisions. And part of what I do is educating and taking people through the process so they understand you know, where their money's invested, what we're doing, the reasons why we're doing it. Um, and they're making the decisions, but they're getting assistance with those decisions along the way. You, you just mentioned before about um, political influences on markets. That's an area that you're really interested in. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about that? Look, I wouldn't say that you should be basing investment decisions on political events. They certainly have an impact on markets, there is always going to be something to worry about in terms of the political landscape and the economic landscape. There's never a time where there's nothing to worry about. And what you do find is, is, is markets will muddle through. But having an understanding and awareness of what's going on, I think, is, is really important. It could be comforting as well, I guess, knowing yeah. that these things will be there, always be there, but always changing. Well, you never know. Um, and I think that's, that's really the uncertainty that markets play on. Markets try and guess, markets try and look one year, two years in advance, and markets tend to, to move quickly. But you need to have an understanding in terms of, okay, well, what are the big forces that are, that are sort of behind some of these shifts? And you know, the shift in terms of, okay, a change in economic growth, maybe things start to move more defensively and, and a shift towards higher interest rates and, and how that's going to affect asset prices. There's a, there's a lot of things going on. Um, in the big picture that it's important to have an understanding of. Um, but there's also a lot going on at the very small micro level in terms of a, an individual company, understanding more companies, the environment they operate in, but sometimes they can be you know, completely separate with what's going on in the world. A company can have a, a niche, it can be making money in a growing market and it can do very well. So there's really the big picture, but there's also understanding sort of where you're investing in the specifics of a type of investment, be it an individual company or, or a type of, type of asset. Now, it's interesting you say that because there are, there are some companies that do make money no matter what the economic times are. Um, you mentioned defensive stocks. That's usually consumer staples. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Consumer staples being? Woolworths and uh, recently uh, demerged coals. So you can now invest in, in coals directly. Because people um, still have to eat. People still have to eat, yeah. People um, need food on their table. So that tends to be very defensive. And healthcare is another one, um, which tends to be very defensive because of the, the, the need for ongoing healthcare and ageing population. And So they are, they're two sectors that are, are very good examples of you know, defensive within the stock market. doesn't mean that they're immune from the, the big mechanisms of, of market movements, but typically when you start to see forecasts or fears of, of growth slowing down, markets tend to shift from those stocks that perform well when the, when the economy is doing well to stocks which tend to sort of weather things out. So it's kind of a rotation that goes on with, within markets as well as markets going up and down generally. So there's a lot of dynamics going on, but um, defensive stocks, Coles and Woolies are, are, are certainly certainly considered up there as well. Talking about the valuation of the stock, and that's based on the earnings, that's the price-earnings ratio, really, isn't it? It's one of the most fundamental ways of valuing 
a share price. Yeah. Uh, can you explain that a little bit to me, please? Price earnings ratio is uh, a company will will earn a certain amount each year, and its its value can be extrapolated in terms of a multiple of its earnings. So, um, if you look at a, a bank, possibly on about ten or eleven times earnings. Um, so essentially, you're, you're paying ten years of of, uh, of earnings in the price. Um, so it'll pay itself off in in ten years. That's a price earnings multiple. So if you buy a stock for fifty dollars now, it's, it, yeah, that example's. Um, or, let's say it's a fifty. Me, let's yeah. say it's a fifty million dollar company. Uh, you're paying a, a multiple of ten. Then it's earning five million dollars a year, and so it's going to take ten years to pay back the amount that you pay you bought that stock for. Now, hopefully, that stock's going to grow its earnings over time, and you also need to take into account the time value of money, um, and so discounting that, discounting that back. But earnings multiples is a way of comparing stocks, and you can compare similar stocks in an industry. One might be trading on a higher multiple; it could be more expensive than. Another so they one. might be on an eighteen rather than. Could a be 10. on an eighteen as opposed to a competitor which is on a fifteen times multiple. Then you're going to think, well, why, why is that on a higher multiple more expensive than the competitor? Is it on a higher multiple because it's in a stronger position? Is it just expensive? You can also compare multiples of markets, and often you, you see those comparisons. The, the, the ASX, you know, long-term average price earnings multiples about 14 times. So you go through periods where the market might be trading on 16 times. So it's a little bit more expensive than the long run average. So the higher the number, the more expensive. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, so you're looking for a lower P ratio than a higher one. It's comparing averages. So you, you can kind of look at long-term averages and say, well, this market's trading at a higher multiple than its historical average. And typically what happens over history is things revert to the mean. So you kind of know, well, if it's on 16 times and the market trades at 14 times, one of two things have got to happen. The earnings of the market have got to, got to increase to justify the price, or the price has got to come down to match the earnings. What's the time value of money? What do you mean by time value? So time value of money is, is really put simply, um, a dollar today is going to be worth more than getting a dollar in 20 years' time. Why, and, why is that? And, and that's just through the natural erosion of value that occurs from inflation. So um, a dollar will buy you more today in terms of goods and services than a dollar will buy you in 20 years' time, simply because uh, inflation will mean prices are, are higher. So that's where you discount the value of, of, of cash flows in the future to come up with a value of, of what that what that is today. And, and that's a big way of trying to value companies and putting a value on a share price. Okay, what's earnings per share then? So earnings per share takes the... And this is normally called EPS, isn't it? EPS. So um, generally earnings per share will break down the earnings of a company on a per share basis. So you will get an overall profit divided by the number of shares that are are issued on the market. So that'll give you an earnings per share. And then you can have a dividend per share. So you you really want to be looking for companies that that are not paying out more than their... Their earnings per share, because um, that's not sustainable. So the dividends per share should be uh, should always be lower than the earnings per share. It should always be lower, and and also I'd say it should be lower from the perspective that you want to be in a company that 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 also has opportunities to further reinvest those profits in the future, um, rather than just pay it all out to 
to investors. Now, there are certainly instances where you, you do want a high payout ratio, but also you might find companies where uh, they're not paying a high dividend because they're reinvesting the profits to grow for the future. So you've got earnings per share, dividend per share, and you can get anything you know, in between in terms of what a company might be doing with their profits, whether they're paying it to investors in terms of income or reinvesting it. I would say income is pretty important from an investing perspective. Companies that, that do pay a good, um, stable uh, income tend to perform well over a long period of time. Companies that have a strong balance sheet that are generating positive cash flow. So you can glean certain information from an earnings per share, but it's not until you actually get into the balance sheet of a company to understand, well, how much debt does this company have? And if debt markets tighten up, is that going to cause a problem? Uh, Is this company actually Which means they're going to be paying higher interest rates. Paying higher interest rates or may not be able to refinance. And and, uh, is this company generating enough cash to pay its you know, pay for its debt, you know, or is this company actually in negative cash flow? So really sort of scratching beneath the detail of, of an earnings per share or dividend per share is, is what, what's needed to sort of break things down to understand the investability of something. Okay, here's the challenge for you now. I've always wanted to ask an accountant this. What's EBITDA? Earnings before interest, tax, uh, depreciation and amortisation. <laughs> okay, break it down for us. <laughs> oh, look, EBITDA is probably a better way of, of looking at an earnings of a company. When you get um, tax um, accounting involved like depreciation and amortisation, you can you get a little bit more financial engineering going on and obviously structuring things uh, or profit line from a tax perspective is very different from just looking at the, the raw earnings. So EBITDA is a good number to be looking at it just at the earnings of a, of, a, of a company. So it's the raw yeah, the raw numbers. Yeah. We're just making this amount of money by digging something out of the ground or selling something to someone else. That's right. So, you know, a mining company, for example, you know, it might, you know, its, it's earnings number might be X, but it's purchased all this mining equipment and it's able to claim all this depreciation off the cost of that mining equipment, which then gets offset against the profit number. And obviously, that tax accounting can vary significantly between businesses. So just comparing the, the, the earnings, um, the EBITDA between companies is, is a much better number to use. And also in Australia, because we've got a lot of mining companies here, so we, we need to be aware of what they, they do and how they're valued. AISC, all-in sustaining costs. Ah, well, Have you heard of that, that one? That's a, that's a, that's a mining Again, a mining, and that's term. specifically for mining companies, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's 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 taking into account all the costs of production for, say, digging an ounce of gold out of the out of the ground. So uh, again, that's probably looking at all the costs and comparing that gives you a closer apples versus apples. This is quite an interesting thing about valuing companies: is that there is a lot of rubbery figures in these valuations, and often you don't find out until. Later on, there's plenty of examples where even uh, guidance that's been issued by a company turns out to be very different in a short period of time afterwards. And people look at, well, how did you not know that? Yeah, the market's not not perfect and the reporting of of companies uh, is certainly not perfect either in that regard. Do you have any interest in technical analysis? Look, it's it's an important um, part of the picture of investing. It's probably more important for traders and first of all can you explain to us what technical analysis is really there's there's you can break it down to two types of in investing um 
you have the fundamental analysis, which is, you know, looking at the um, business fundamentals of what you're investing in. So um, what industry is it invested in? What's its competitive position against competitors? What's its balance sheet looks like? What, what does its cash flow look like? What dividend is it paying? All these factors specific to a, a, a company and really picking apart the aspects of the company and coming up with a valuation is fundamental analysis. Technical analysis is really looking at the charts and it's taking the fundamentals aside. You're basically understanding or researching the price action of that particular share. So you're looking at a, you're looking at a chart which shows the price action over a period of time and yeah. where, what the, what's happened with the price? Yeah, look, that's right. You go back a period of time. It's always historical and you understand how that share price has moved. There's many schools of thought around technical analysis that can extrapolate movements in the share price and try and predict where the share price is going. And and that can get really complex. There's lots of uh, indicators out there, moving averages, oscillators. Patterns. Um, it's all mathematical patterns um, that you can overlay on a chart to try and give you signals when to buy and sell. And that's really getting down, it can get down to a very um, small time period where you have uh, active share traders that are trading in and out of positions purely on the, on the price action. They might even not know anything about the company that they're investing in. So that's share trading. It's based on technical analysis and it's really trying to predict future prices based on the historical prices and mathematics of, of, of the shares. And it's an understanding of markets and how markets move. And, you know, some strategies perform well in certain markets, others don't. So um, it's, it's a really interesting field. What's the one piece of advice you would give um, a first-time share investor? I think understand what you're trying to do and what you're trying to achieve. Um, you really need to know yourself um, before you just jump in to the share market. Know yeah. yourself. Know yourself, absolutely. So know yourself, are you trying to trade and do things short term and, 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 and really be in and out of the market and make a quick profit or are you an investor? Um, now I would say it's very, very hard to be a trader. Um, and you know the statistics are that you know, 90% of people fail. So if you're gonna go down that path, make sure you start practicing without using real money. Really understand what you're trying to do, perfect your craft, but it's very, very difficult. Um, on the investing side of the ledger, you tend to have a little bit more of a long-term perspective. Again, it's important to understand what you're doing. Um, research the different ways to access the share market. Uh, think about using exchange-traded funds or listed investment companies or managed, managed funds to get a base, particularly if you're investing your retirement money. You don't want to be trying to move in and out of the market and try and pick stocks from the get-go because ultimately it can be very random and the market can be very cruel. So my advice is understand who you are, what you're trying to achieve, um, and then go about sort of building uh, your own strategy step-by-step rather than going boots and all or trying to follow someone else or or the latest newsletter because there's a lot of distractions out there. Um, And also, if you're unsure, get some advice. Okay, and if they want advice from you, how can they get in touch with you? So my business is Wealth Simplicity. Um, you can get in touch with me, uh, Rob.Gilmore at uh, wealthsimplicity.com. 
Uh, my website is uh, wellsimplicity.com, so you can read a little bit more about me there. And um, if anyone wants to, to get in touch, I'd be more than happy to have uh, a chat. Thanks very much for your time. My pleasure, Phil. Rob's website again is wealthsimplicity.com. And don't forget to mention beginners when you say hi. Shares for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Shares for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Soulos for music production with that special Greekalicious flavour. Remember, music always flows, even when the money won't. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.